in this sermon today, there, I want to do a couple of things. I always talk on Easter about what the church has on offer, and most particularly our species of Christianity, which we call in this country the Episcopal Church, and other places the Anglican Church, the Church of England in America, I guess this could be the best explanation. We have some uh, ways, distinctive ways, that we understand the Christian mystery, and we need to celebrate in addition to that that this is the day when we proclaim the possibility of transformation and new life. Just so that I betray my uh, biases right away, I believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and was seen by his apostles and others before he ascended into heaven. And there's an interesting book, it's a very scholarly book, uh, that came out a couple of years ago by an English New Testament historian named Richard Baucom. And he, the title of the book is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And what he says in this book, it's very controversial in this age of skepticism. He said, most of what is said in the biblical witness in the Gospels in some way can historically be traced back to eyewitness testimony. So I think that's a very interesting and important thing. When I went to seminary, I was in the bosom of the uh, higher criticism method of reading the Bible, and it has turned out to be less useful than it used to be. So I'll just, I'll just say that. As Episcopalians, we believe the Bible is true, and some of it happened. <laughs> right? So that's the important thing about this. We're not biblical literalists. Three things that we understand to be at the center of our self-understanding as Christian people in this tradition, uh, the places we look for what is authoritative are these. The first is the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The second is the tradition of the church with a capital T. And let me pause for a minute and say that we believe that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky into our hands. It came through people who believed that they had an intense experience of God in their life, particularly as they were witnesses to the words and works of Jesus. And they wrote this down. Prior to that, we have the great and the grand narrative from the Hebrew Bible that brings us from there to here. And it describes for us the way in which we understand God's work in the world and how, for Christian people, it culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that one, the, the biblical accounts, and certainly the one in John, tells us that the first person to discover the empty tomb and to see Jesus was Mary Magdalene. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, she's referred to as the Apostle to the Apostles. It's very interesting when they say that because the Eastern Orthodox are adamant about the fact that women ought not to be priests. <laughs> 
So I think we're out a little ahead on that matter, don't you? But it's interesting that Mary, I, some of you may say, why does he say Mary Magdalene? I've even influenced Archdeacon Weber. <laughs> Years ago, when I was in seminary, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury was a man named Michael Ramsey. And uh, I met him and knew him because he was a great friend of the rector of St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo. And he would visit from time to time. And when I came back from seminary on a visit, he was there. And there's a picture of me somewhere standing with uh, Michael Ramsey. But he preached a sermon at St. Matthew's Church. And he said, Mary Magdalene. And I said to myself, from now on, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. <laughs> no matter what anybody thinks. Right? We proclaim the importance of the Holy Scriptures, the tradition with a capital T, and our own human reason and experience. As it is brought to bear, you ought to be able to bring the full force and effect of your intellectual powers to examine and understand the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So we believe that. I'm going to read something to you now because it, we, we always think that our age is the special age, you know. We're in an age of terrible uh, skepticism. Uh, nobody's going to church anymore. We think this, we're in a situation that is unprecedented. In 1819, at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, six people received Holy Communion on Easter. And in Paris, it was nine. So, what goes around comes around. The karmic forces are always at work. <laughs> About 15 years ago, I read a book some of you may have read called Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. I think it is a wonderful book because it aptly describes the situation on the ground in the Silicon Valley. It's a perfect description of the way most people think. And particularly because it's larded with the high-tech stuff and language uh, about which I am not well-versed. But it's interesting. So here's a little part of the backstory. One of the main characters is a guy named Randy who's involved in uh, creating a security web or server somewhere in, the, in Asia. And it takes him there and he discovers or tries to find a bunch of gold that has been hid uh, in the Philippine Islands by the Japanese. And, there's a, but, and anyway, he was involved with a woman in Seattle by the name of Charlene. And he broke that relationship off and became involved with a woman named Amy Shafto, who lived in the Philippines and has been around in a lot of places. And so they're now together. And they have come to Seattle to visit and see their friends. And Randy is a bit worried about the reception he's going to receive because Charlene has done plenty of talking to their friends in Seattle about what a jerk Randy is, okay? So he goes to a party 
And he, this is what Stevenson reports. The friendliest and most sincere welcome he'd gotten was from Scott, a chemistry professor, and Laura, a pediatrician, who, after knowing Randy and Charlene for many years, had one day divulged to Randy in strict confidence that unbeknownst to the academic community at large, they had been spiriting their three children off to church every Sunday morning and even had them all baptized. <laughs> Randy had gone into their house once to help Scott wrestle a freshly reconditioned clawfoot bathtub up the stairs and had actually seen the word God written on actual pieces of paper stuck to the walls of their house, like on the refrigerator door and the walls of the children's bedrooms, where juvenile art tends to be deposited, little time-wasting projects that had been done during Sunday school, pages torn from coloring books showing a somewhat more multicultural Jesus than the one Randy had grown up with, curly hair, etc., talking to little biblical kids or assisting disoriented Holy Land livestock. The sight of this stuff around the house co-mingled with normal, that is, secular, kid art junk from elementary school, Batman posters, etc., made Randy feel grossly embarrassed. It was like going to the house of some supposedly sophisticated people and finding a neon-on-black velvet Elvis painting hanging above their state-of-the-art Italian designer furniture. Definitely a social class thing. And it wasn't like Scott and Laura were deadly earnest types, and neither were they glassy-eyed and foaming at the mouth. They had, after all, managed to pass themselves off as members in good standing of a decent academic society for a number of years. They were a bit quieter than many others. They took up less space in the room. But then that was normal for people trying to raise three kids, and so they passed. Randy and Amy had spent a full hour talking to Scott and Laura last night. They were the only people who made any effort to make Amy feel welcome. Randy hadn't the faintest idea what these people thought of him and what he had done, but he could sense right away that essentially that was not the issue because even if they thought he had done something evil, they at least had a framework, a sort of procedure manual for dealing with transgressions. To translate it into Unix system administration terms, Randy's fundamental metaphor for just about everything. The postmodern politically correct atheists were like people who had suddenly found themselves in charge of a big and unfathomably complex computer system, society, with no documentation or instructions of any kind, and so whose only way to keep the thing running was to invent and enforce certain rules with a kind of neo-puritanical rigor because they were at a loss to deal with any deviations from what they saw as the norm. Whereas people who were wired into a church 
were like Unix system administrators who, while they might not understand everything, at least had some documentation, some FAQs, and how-tos, and readme files, providing some guidance on what to do when things got out of whack. They were, in other words, capable of adaptability. You know, Christianity is not just about abstruse religious practices. The main goal is to have all of us become the best human beings we can be. That through connecting with the great themes at the liturgy, you know, we believe in something in Latin called lex credendi, lex orandi, the law of prayer, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. So what we pray, we believe. And if what we're doing right now has nothing to do with what we do when we go outside, it's a useless undertaking. It has no meaning. So what is involved here is learning how to be a human being, to learn to be the best human being that we can be. Here are three things, or four th three things that are important, four things actually, I'm losing it, uh, that are important about Easter and the great 50 days. The four themes that course through the 50 days and are always in some form present in the rest of the liturgical year. The first one of these themes is the presence of the light of Christ, symbolized by the Paschal candle. And this can be understood in two ways. The light of Christ leading us both personally and corporately, showing us the way, externally. And the light of Christ is also the light that shines in each human being, the divine presence. And it shows us the way as we meander through our own personal demons and the conundrums of life, that illuminative process of God is present to you internally. And so you have some understanding about how to go, where to go. So the light internally shines on all of those qualities that are godly. Paul would say, whatsoever things are of good report. And this light also shines on those defects of character that all of us have that enables us to now see them and to say that there's a way to, that we can undertake to begin to put those to the side, to be transformed. Resurrection is not just the celebration of a discrete D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E -E event. It's the celebration that new life and transformation is available to you in any age and at every time. So we celebrate the presence of the light of Christ. The second theme is listening to the grand narrative, what we call the history of salvation. And I'm coming more and more, both in my own ministry and personally in my own spiritual pilgrimage, to appreciate the importance of reading the Bible in a way that understands it as a narrative, a description. The, the resurrection only makes sense if you know the backstory. If you've started from Genesis and moved to this, you will understand why the people, the New Testament writers, described this as they did because it resonated with their own self-understanding and the witness of the Hebrew scriptures, which they all knew. 
And they said, this is predictive of what it is that we're, we have come to now. They saw Jesus Christ on every page of the Bible. And they understood that this is the way in which we are moving. The third thing is, in a few minutes, we're going to uh, reaffirm our baptismal vows. And we understand that the starting point for every Christian person is their baptism. And that all of us are uh, moving in a direction as the result. We have been put on pilgrimage. But we need to remember also that baptism is everybody's ordination. We're part of the priesthood of all believers. There are, there are people who have been set aside and, um, you know, as uh, leaders in this enterprise. But we're all on a pilgrimage. We're all part of the priesthood of all believers. So baptism is very important. And the sacramental life that it introduces to us. The resources that are available now to us. And then finally, of course, uh, the fourth part is the celebration of the Eucharist. Thanksgiving is what Eucharist means in Greek. And it is what we do week to week, Sunday to Sunday, year in and year out. And it is feeding us with that spiritual food and drink that gives us the power to be God's people in the world. I've said this many times. When I was a young priest and even more insufferable than I am now... I used to stand at the door and people would, you know, as LBJ used to say, press the flesh. And somebody would come out and they'd say, you know, Father Brewer, I don't know whether I believe that the bread and wine become Jesus' body and blood. And I don't understand all of those ways that it gets explained technically in Episcopalian 101. But all I know is, is that when I come to Mass and receive communion, and when I leave, I feel better. So I used to pull myself up to my full height and say, well, yeah, but you have to understand that the reason why we have yeah, it Good, if you feel better, I am happy now. I want everybody to feel better. That's part of this whole exercise. It may be even the main part. Because why? Because when you go out and you feel better, you make a difference in the world and to other people. They can see it. And they're, they're in some way now more open to listening, if necessary, to the practical wisdom that you have to share. Remember, the unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. <laughs> So that's not what I'm talking about. You know, let me tell you about what you ought to do. No. It means that as a fellow pilgrim, you're sharing with them what it is that you have learned as you've moved forward. And perhaps it may be of some benefit. Just as, and also, this involves the process of listening to somebody as share with you their practical wisdom. So there's this reciprocal process that takes place. So sometimes in the course of your life, you have some inkling as to what God's purposes are for you, or for more to the point, what your place is in the world, in the divine economy. And you understand it. Uh, about two years ago or three years ago now, a wonderful book 
for people who are interested in this stuff like I am. Uh, a, a big, thick book by Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, called A Secular Age. And he has a wonderful paragraph in this book uh, about this feeling that our human experience that longs for the consolations of the deep things of Christian faith and belief, and this may be said to be true for other of the great faith traditions. So this is how he describes this in a philosopher's term, so bear with me. We all see in our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral spiritual shape somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness Richness, that is, in that place, activity or condition, life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. This is perhaps a place of power. We often experience this as deeply moving, as inspiring. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of from afar off. We have the powerful intuition of what fullness would be were we to be in that condition, for example, of peace or wholeness, or able to act on that level of integrity or generosity or abandonment or self-forgetfulness. But sometimes there will be moments of experienced fullness of joy and fulfillment where we feel ourselves there. Joseph Campbell on the PBS show said when he was on the track team at Columbia University, he was standing in the stadium on the track and he had a moment where he instantly understood who he was, where he was, and what his purpose in life was to be. He was absolutely connected. You don't have to make that sound. But you know what I mean, you know. Even if it's a nanosecond, you go, boom, I get it. I've got it. And I think all of us yearn for that sort of thing. For me, it has always been uh, useful to uh, experience the liturgy, to be in the midst of all that and to be with uh, fellow Christian people who are yearning in the same way. So when we celebrate the great 50 days of Easter, uh, understand that God loves you, accepts you, and forgives you unconditionally. And that moment, that place where we feel ourselves there is the way in which we understand God's default position. When God's judgment and God's mercy collide... God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And the biblical witness is replete with examples of how that is so. And so when we say the transformation in new life is a possibility, it's because all of us believe that. And all of us have felt that. And when we do, we understand our place in the world. 
So as you go through the great 50 days of Easter, give thanks for the presence in your life, even though it may be inaccessible from time to time, of the fullness of God within you. Father Thomas Keating, the great Trappist monk who's written widely, uh, says that when you do this, you are in touch with your true self. We are not God, but our true self is God. And when we understand that, we don't understand God as other. We understand that we are one. Amen.